Uh, thank you again, everybody. Uh, this is Pastoral Appreciation Month. Now, now I say that um, not because I wanted you to know that, but because last night as I was <clears throat> surfing the internet, I found that on the front page of Bible Gateway, they really want you to appreciate your pastors. So that's, um, I kind of feel like the man who bought a tower and I, I don't feel like I'm, I've run out of money. It's just young men who are preparing, young families who are, you're preparing for the future. You want to buy a house. You want to eventually have a family and a home and, you know, do right by your wife and children. Um, save money. Save money because it is expensive. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives and how good you are to us and how kind you are in, in bringing us wisdom via your Holy Spirit through your word. I pray that as we look at what Jesus says is the cost of discipleship, that you would inform us, that you would put form and structure into us in such a way that we are ready to count all as nothing compared to the glory of seeing you and savoring you as the only treasure worth seeking. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about discipleship today. If you were um, at any of the Rock Campus Fellowship meetings, and I believe it was actually just last week, we actually did, did discuss the same passage or part of this passage. I thought it was important to re-highlight it because it's so fundamental to even the beginning walk with the Lord. You can come to church, you can, you can do all sorts of uh, godly things, so-called godly things, read your Bible, worship, meditate, pray, etc. And yet, if you're really not following Jesus Christ from your heart, and you're not treasuring him as the supreme value in your life, you are not really a disciple, and you're just fooling yourself. Now, that's a very hard word, but that's not my word. That's simply Jesus's word in this chapter in Luke 14. So with that, you know, if there's this value that we need to see Christ as ultimately precious, ultimately worthy, if, if that's what is required for us to follow him, then how do, we, how do we assess that? How do we learn to see Christ as ultimately worthy? Well, it, it, he does it in this chapter through the use of parables. And we're going to examine mostly the parable of the banquet today. But we're also going to look at the situation around that parable. First, we're going to talk about how Jesus was dining with the Pharisees. This is something that you or I would think is just absolutely, you know, amazing. It, it's just amazing that Jesus, to me, would, would go and spend time with those who are his religious opponents. We're going to look at the wedding feast parable, that is the, um, this idea that there was a, a great feast to be had. We're going to look at the parable of the great banquet, and then finally at the specific teachings where Jesus explains and gives some analogies. They're, sm they're like one or two sentence parables. He gives some analogies or, or small parables about what it actually means to follow him. So the first thing that I think is remarkable about this chapter is that Jesus is actually eating with Pharisees. We, we think of Jesus, and most of the time if you've seen one of the Jesus movies or, you know, like the Gospel of John on DVD or whatever, you, you, you know, close your eyes, imagine, you pick, pick a situation. Okay, there's Jesus in some sort of bed sheet, and he's walking around on sand and pebbles, and, you know, there's mountains, and it's a desert. And, you know, he's walking around Judea, 
and um, it's just a complete desert. Jesus here is not just, he's not just talking to the people. He's directly talking to Pharisees. He went to that dinner with a specific goal, and that goal was to help pierce their pride. Now, you may say, uh, Jesus, this is kind of odd for you to be going up against or going to, to eat with your religious opponents or those who are, are kind of ticked off at you. What are you doing here? Well, Jesus would basically explain, and he, and he, shows, he shows his purpose through what he says. He basically sa- is, is his goal there is to offend their religious heart just enough so they can hear the truth. Now, you or I, we, we might take an approach of, oh, we're just going to be nice to that person, or we're just going to kind of be accommodating and not, not offend them too much and not say anything that they would consider to be, you know, uh, offensive or over the line, so to speak. You know, if, if you, it, it'd be like the worst type of approach if you had someone who was like a, a, a Hindu or a Buddhist uh, and you just kind of were like, well, that's cool that you're a Hindu. I'm a Christian and we're friends and, you know, just never present any sort of truth. You know, it's, a, it's good that you're a Hindu. I'll be a Christian. We can exist. You know, if you were encountering someone who was an opponent religiously, that is, you, they, they had a faith that was opposite yours. If you really are convinced that you have the truth, you're not just going to be accommodating. And just be like, okay, well, you can be a Hindu, or you can be a Muslim, or you can be whatever. You know, you can live for yourself. I'm going to live for Jesus. We can get along, and we're compatible. There's no compatibility there. And Jesus' goal here is not to acquiesce towards the Pharisees, but rather to, um, as it were, punch them in the face, right? They, they say, you know, enemies stab you in the back, but real friends stab you in the face. The idea is that if, if you're really my friend— and you see a terrible thing in my life, the only loving thing to do would be to call it out, call a spade a spade, and, and help me deal with the problem. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So um, I believe that in the scripture, in the narrative of scripture, there are times where God the Father has orchestrated events so that both in the situation, in the real world experience of Jesus being at this dinner and the way that the narrative comes across, there is an intentionality there or a purpose there that presents us, uh, that is presented to us as literary beauty. And what Jesus does here is he's about to heal this guy. And in healing this guy, he uses it as a, a life lesson or an example right in front of the Pharisees. He heals this man who has this thing called dropsy. Now, we've got a bunch of nurses in this room, and uh, it's very intimidating as an uneducated... I, I, I slept through my ninth grade biology class, but as I understand, dropsy is um, the old word for a new medical phenomenon called edema, right? And edema is the swelling of the body, the, literally the swelling of the flesh, with fluid. It, water's not going in the right place or something. And in in a way, I believe, you know, poetically or r- rhetorically, that this is a, a thing that Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm about to show you the healing for a puffed up flesh 
or a, a swelled body, an ego that is too large, a, an over-reliance on the natural mind. And here's how it, how it works. And so Jesus heals this man with this puffed-up flesh or swollen, you know, swollen body, which speaks of, literally, the, uh, the nature, the, the old man or the old way of thinking before we have a renewed mind. So Jesus goes into it at Luke 14, 3 through 6. He responds to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Why couldn't they reply to these things? In the law, there was a special provision that if your neighbor's ox or neighbor's property went off into a ditch or a pit or fell off you know, the road and was disabled, you had an obligation to go rescue that, that animal. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you Pharisees who are religious and heart of heart and haters of God, you are accusing me of doing sin on the Sabbath, but am I doing anything worse than just picking a man out of a pit? I'm healing a body. I'm doing a, a creative miracle. I'm, I'm restoring a physical structure through supernatural means by the power of God through the Holy Spirit, and you're calling it sin. Now, if that's not one of the most punch-you-in-the-face kind of uh, confrontations, I don't know what is. But at this point, it says they, they couldn't even answer. So they didn't it's, – it's kind of like – you got scolded so bad by your by your dad or your mom or you got spanked so hard that you don't talk for like a week. I mean, you just you're not going to misbehave. You like you make your own bed. He really takes a schooling to them, so to speak. And he does so with the intention of love. He's trying to help them understand that they are puffed up. They're they're like this man who needs healing. They're puffed up in their flesh and they're swollen in their religious egos and they need help. And in this second question, he makes this connection between his healing and the law's provision to rescue and redeem those things which fall into danger. What he's saying is, you're accusing me of breaking the law, and I'm telling you that without the power of God, you can't even fulfill the law. Do you see how that works? This man, Jesus is saying, the law says that you have to go and get your neighbor's ox or, or child or whatever out of a pit and you're supposed to preserve life. That's, that's the point behind that law, is to teach Israel that life is precious, right? And so Jesus is saying, there's this sick guy over here, and spiritually and bodily, this man with this swelling of his flesh, he's in a pit. And if you're not filled with the power of God, if you're not filled with the Spirit of God, you can't even complete the law. And so by doing so, Jesus is saying that healing is restoring your fellow man and loving your neighbor. So he goes into this uh, this little hypothetical situation. It's not really a parable so much as as maybe an analogy. You know, you could call it a parable. But um, as Jesus is going to dinner that night, he notices how the people, how the Pharisees and the lawyers, how they're taking their seats. Uh, I think people watching is is a wonderful gift of God. Sometimes you can be you can be a, a creeper. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. But you should notice sometimes how people behave, especially, you know, 
when you're with the church and when you're with those who are in the world. And you should no you take notice sometimes of how do people behave. What is politeness? How does it show up? Jesus is not just talking about a politeness that is social nicety. He's talking about an issue of social behavior that has a spiritual and evil root at its, at its core. And so Jesus is basically saying, you guys who are the respected teachers, I've seen how you rush to the head table. Whenever they had a dinner back in that day, there would be uh, this head table, right? Um, if you've ever been to a wedding, the, the same tradition holds. The bride and the groom sit at the center of the event, and the whole purpose of the event is to honor the bride and groom, to honor the parents, to, as a community, recognize, the new recognize and celebrate the new marriage that God has brought together. And so at the head table in a wedding, to one side you have all the grooms, uh, groomsmen, rather, and to the other side you have the bride and all her bridesmaids, uh, bridesmaidens and bridesmaids. Um, and so you've got, you've got this notion of a table of honor, okay? Now this is what they did back in that day. It's the same idea, but they did it for any sort of banquet, not just weddings. And... What, what he's saying is, I've noticed how some of you, you know, the upper echelons of the religious hierarchy of the Pharisees, I've noticed how you immediately went to take your seat at the table of honor. And Jesus is, is what he's doing is he's offending their behavior. He's calling them out publicly. And he's offending them in such a way to demonstrate that why you did this is actually a bigger cause for concern than where you're sitting that night. He teaches against their pride via this parable about, uh, about a wedding, and at the end, he summarizes and explains the teaching as a core value of the kingdom. Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is not just uh, a Pharisee issue or what you do as a believer Jesus is saying that if you are somebody who uh, doesn't humble yourself, you can't follow him. That's, that is the whole purpose of this chapter, is to demonstrate to people, to demonstrate to his hearers, here are the things that indicate discipleship. Here are the things that are necessary if you're really going to follow me. Because being a disciple is not being an admirer. If you've ever been on Twitter, they have this notion on Twitter where, you know, if you want to follow or if you want to see all my tweets and I want to see all your tweets, we both have to follow each other, right? But following each other today or, or being a friend on Facebook is more like being an admirer. And Jesus is saying, I want you to imitate my life. And he's demonstrating that if you're someone who doesn't humble yourself, there is no way that you can come and follow me because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, the, the birds of the air have their nests, the foxes have their holes, but the Son, of, the Son of Man, in his ministry, in what he's doing, in his identity, as going to the lowest places, he has no place to, to rest his head. And that's what it really means to be a Christian, and that's what Jesus is trying to, to talk about today. So after this, he then, um, you know, he gives this kind of rebuke, and then someone responds to the rebuke, Blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom. And what Jesus notices is there's this air of 
of religious or racial supremacy. Because this person is saying, you know, hey, we're the Israelites. We're going to be in the kingdom of God. Blessed are we. Right? He says, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom. And Jesus is then kind of, he's trying to open this man's eyes and the rest of the Pharisees as well. And he's trying to say through this parable, who is in the kingdom is not who you might imagine. In this parable, the kingdom is depicted as a great banquet. Okay, that's easy. Jesus says, you know, there was a banquet and and he's talking about the kingdom. So it's easy to know that. And then the father who holds the or the man who holds this banquet is the father, is Father God. Okay, so the father is is the head over the entire kingdom, and it is literally called the kingdom of God. And so this banquet in this parable is the kingdom, the man is the father. So the question becomes, who are those who were invited but were too busy to come, right? That's that's the question. Whenever you're trying to to learn a parable or to see what Jesus means when he's speaking in parables, you got to dissect, you got to ask questions, you got to mine the the scripture for truth. And so the question really is in this parable is who are those who don't come? And why don't they come? Well, it's easy to say who are those who don't come. Those who don't come are those who are religious and self-exalting and those who have the trappings of God and the trappings of belief but have no substance at all. They're those who become distracted with every manner of thing. So what are their excuses for coming? Their excuses for coming are the things in life which keep our hearts from drawing near to God. And those include distractions of various sorts, finances, concerns about money, families, various relations, the desire to have a spouse, your actual spouse, maybe you you have exalted them above God, or your children, or your homes, or your businesses, or your hobbies, or anything. Jesus basically explains that, you know, one of the one of the persons says, I can't come because I've just bought some oxen, and those represent business. I can't come because I just married a wife, and that's your family and your spouse and your children. Jesus is trying to explain that there are things which will keep you out of the kingdom, not because they're evil themselves, but because what you're doing with them are evil or is evil. And so this is the, the basis for idolatry. As we search our hearts, as we, tor- as we walk with Christ, as we walk towards Christ, we get into situations where we can make idols out of absolutely anything. Are you putting your job before spending time in the Word? Are you putting your financial comfort before sharing with those who are poor around you? Are you not tithing? Are you not giving to the Lord because you're afraid that you won't have enough money to pay your bills? And yet, and yet there's tons of things in your life that are all out of order, that you're spending your money on foolish things instead of investing in the kingdom. It's not about investing in the kingdom or, or tithing or, or things like that. It's that money and what you do with money demonstrates the inner heart reality. What you do with your finances, what you do with your time, what you do with your family your spouse, your friends, those are not evil in and of themselves. They merely indicate the internal reality that already exists in your heart. And so if you find yourself, you know, offended by this message or even, let's say, not offended but convicted, I'm not really calling out your name. I might be talking about some subjects, but if that's conviction, it's probably the Holy Spirit. 
because I'm not naming anybody's names. And I'm guilty of these things from time to time as well. Everyone is. But what Jesus is saying is if you let this be exalted above God, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. You're not even in the kingdom. You won't even show up and respond to the invitation to come. It's pretty serious. So what happens after this? Well, the, the master of the banquet desires for his house to be filled. If you have a notion of God, the Father, that you're kind of confused about election or, or predestination, if you will, as in if God has desired that all will be saved and yet only those who are elected make it into, the, you know, make it into heaven or are saved or, or whatever, take note. Because this, this parable is trying to tell you what the heart of the Father is. The heart of the father is this man who's holding the banquet. He sends his servant out. He says, so the servant came out and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. Is God a jealous God? Yes, absolutely. He became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Do you hear the urgency in the father's heart? Go quickly. Go find anyone. Go tell it, tell it anywhere that you're invited to this banquet. It says, go to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. There is no lack of compassion in the father's heart to see broken, sinful men and women be restored through the blood of Jesus. There is no lack in the father's heart at all of his goodness or kindness. It is only our blind hard-heartedness that prevents, you know, more from hearing his good news. And not only that, responding. And so what's happening is the master had desired for all of his friends, all of his familiar people to, to come, and yet they wouldn't come. So he sends them out to go find the, uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So the question is, why does he go and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame? Well, the answer is not that there's something special about poverty itself or sickness itself that makes somebody holy or makes them righteous or justified in being called to salvation. Your, your sickness, your illness, your poverty is not a special grant from God to make you necessarily more righteous. As in, God doesn't bring suffering to necessarily bring you through uh, some sort of piety that makes you predisposed to being a holy person. Now, yes, God does sometimes use circumstances in a sovereign way, but, but the suffering does not make you holy. What it does, however, is it merely predisposes you, it makes it possible for you to see behind life's very thin veneer to the real substance of your life and the real poverty that you have not is just your physical poverty but the poverty of spirit in the beatitudes when jesus says blessed are the poor he says blessed are the poor in spirit not the poor who don't have anything to eat he says the poor in spirit you can be a rich person and be poor in spirit and in fact if you're as a, as a young man, young woman, if you're gaining life experience and getting better jobs and becoming more wealthy over time and you don't maintain a poverty of spirit, you're in a grave danger of making money an idol, idol in your life. 
And so Jesus here is saying, go and get all the blind, the poor, the wretched, those who, who can't even walk here, get them and bring them to the banquet. Well, why do they come? It's not because they are more holy or they're more willing necessarily, but it, perhaps they respond because they have peered behind this very thin veneer of life. What do I mean by the thin veneer of life? What I mean by the thin veneer of life is that life is fragile. Life is fragile and life is fleeting. I'm already 25 years old. I'm a quarter of a century old. And I blinked between the time that I was eight years old and playing with Legos and my parents' house. It was a blink until this moment. I mean, life just moves so fast. And those who are poor and blind and wretched and crippled, they have seen the fra fragile nature of life. They understand that they are just a breath or two away from dying. That's, that's all that it means when Jesus is saying, go get anybody. And why do they respond? It's not because they're more holy. It's just because they, they see this wonderful offer. Hey, I can go to this banquet where I'm going to be clothed in the right banquet attire. I'm going to be sat at a place of honor. Being in the banquet itself is honorable. I'm going to be fed. Of course they would trade their worthless, you know, poor estate for that. But the, the meaning of the parable is this, that the point is that those who didn't come were in the exact same situation as those who did. That's the point of the parable, is that those who didn't come because they had oxen and houses and wives, they were in the same spiritual state as the poor, the wretched, the crippled. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in response to this person at that dinner table that night saying, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom, Jesus is saying, who eat bread in the kingdom is not who you think. It's not going to be Israel and all the Pharisees and all the religious leaders. It's going to be the poor, the, the poor uh, lowly, those who didn't exalt themselves, those who heard the voice of John the Baptist in the wilderness crying, Call, uh, calling out, make straight the way of the Lord. It's going to be those who respond to the free call and don't try to buy their way into the banquet, right? This is over and over again a, a problem with the Pharisees. They buy the seats of honor in the temple, and they love to hear their names announced as they give money publicly, and they publicly pray, God, thank you that I'm not like this other man, like this wretched sinner over here. When the point of this parable is that everyone was poor and blind and wretched and naked. So after eating the Pharisees, Jesus continues. He goes and starts to teach among the people. And, that, you know, this is kind of, you know, continuing the chapter. The story keeps moving. And he's telling those who are following him in the moment that they will be unable to follow him. Jesus is, is just amazing to me. He's, he's never a God of certainty. He's always a God of faithfulness. But he's never a God of certainty. Following Jesus is not, uh, okay, I'm going to make my to-do list for the next 10 years, and you know the Lord's going to bless me, and he's going to bring me into goodness, and I'm going to do like these eight things, travel the world, you know, have a family. No, I mean, Jesus' call to follow him is you have to leave everything, and you follow me, and you obey my will, and I'll care for you and protect you, and I'll give you water to drink and food to eat, I literally will be your food. 
and beyond that, I'll protect you, and, and I won't let the evil one snatch you out of my hand. That's what Jesus' kind of, you know, the terms are. You, you can never be forsaken. You can never be lost. But the terms are not, you know, you'll have a cool 401k, and you'll have an awesome, like, 10,000 people following you on Twitter. And, you know, you'll have a good job and a good family and a white picket fence. No, none of that is in Jesus' assurance of the call to follow him. The only thing that's sure is that there is no certainty. You know, Jesus is just constantly doing things in the Gospels to offend the mind of his disciples. There's a dead boy. He's living. There's a storm on this water. Our boat's sinking. Jesus is walking on it. He never behaves as our natural-minded man would think that he would behave. He just doesn't. And so he's telling those who are following him in the moment, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to really follow me, well, here's what you are going to have to do. Luke 14, 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus is not asking you to admire him. He's asking you to follow him. And what he's saying is... If you don't measure the cost, you won't be ready. In the moment when I ask you to lay down your job, or the moment when unexpectedly you lose a loved one, or in the moment when that relationship that you've cultivated for two or three years goes south, are you going to follow me? Are you, have you already considered that thing as loss so that in the moment it doesn't lead to your shipwreck? He provides three mini parables. We're only going to look at one. The first of which is a story about a man who tried to build a tower. Luke 14, 28 through 30. He's, he's, again, he's using parables to help people understand uh, his purpose, his content, but also the severity of, of what he's saying. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I pray that your life at the end of your days is not, you don't look back and consider, I didn't count the cost of following Jesus, and I never finished building. There's a foundation of Christ, there's a few years, a few stories of Christian maturity a few layers of brick and, and poured stone, but there's not a tower. I have nothing to show for my life because I didn't consider Christ supremely valuable. And instead, I followed after riches and women or men, depending on your orientation, and, and families and even good things. I pursued them before I pursued the Lord. I don't, I don't wish for that to be your, your lot in life. And Jesus doesn't wish that for his, for his hearers. He's trying to explain that if you're really going to follow me, if you're really going to give everything that you have, you, you need to do it now. You, you can't, in the middle of building your tower, decide if you're really going to follow. 
So after telling another parable, Jesus summarizes and explains the lesson, Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be, cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus, to, just to be clear, is not saying that you can't own a home. Okay, He's not saying that you can't buy groceries and store them in a pantry and have food. What he's saying is you have to renounce them. Okay? You have to say that the car that I drive, the house that I own, the family that I have is not my identity, but rather my identity is that Jesus Christ is ultimately precious and I will follow the Lamb wherever he goes, no matter what. Whatever he calls me to do, having it been confirmed by the, the church, the spirit in conformance with the scriptures, I'll do it. Now, you know, you're not, you're not just open-minded, so, so open-minded that your brains fall out on the floor. You're not, just, you're not just waiting for a prophecy from some random believer at a church you're visiting for that person to tell you, hey, you should marry this person. And then you just say, oh, well, I'm following Jesus. I guess that was a prophecy I should obey. That's not the obedience that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, are you going to love me more than your job? Are you going to love me more than your terrible past? Are you going to stop picking your wounds and let me heal you? Are you going to exalt your family and its priorities over and against me and my purposes? That's what Jesus is saying to his, to his followers. See, owning and renouncing are not the same thing at all. Um, if so, then the entire corpus of Paul's letters would be, have to be thrown out of Scripture because he constantly tells husbands to love their wives. So if you can't, you know, if you can't love your wife and have it be in some sort of union with this passage, then none of the Scripture makes sense. But the Scripture cannot be broken, and so you have to understand these words as Jesus saying, you have to renounce these things so that they no longer have supreme place in your heart. That's what we sing uh, when we sing All is for Your Glory. That that song, we, we sing it all the time. I think it's a great song. And it has, at the end of the chorus, it says, so that in all things you may have the first place. And then by way of explanation, it says, so that all in all things you may have the preeminence. Preeminence means that Jesus has the first place in our hearts and there is no second. You know, that people all the time talk about, like, the military man's order of hierarchy, God, family, country, whatever. No, it's God and nothing. That is what Jesus is saying, is if you have anything that rivals me, you are not my disciple. So nothing can be more poignant in our day where you can go to any store by the end of the hour, spend hundreds of dollars, and have all material wealth that can satisfy you for mere moments. And yet you'll think, I've acquired things. I've, I've made a good life for myself. No, none of that works. And this is the great temptation of, Ameri of being a Christian in the country of, of America. The great temptation is that we value our material goods, our relationships, our jobs, higher than Christ. And so Jesus is wanting it not to be that case. He's teaching that you're not, uh, he's not teaching that you're not allowed to own property or home. It just can't own you. And he, he's also saying that to follow Jesus, to follow him, all of what you have, all of what you hold must be held very lightly. So 
Um, with that, we're gonna we're gonna pray. But the point of the message is this: following Jesus requires all that we have, and the return is that we receive Christ Himself. It's not a um, it's not a call to poverty. It's not a call to self. Um, asceticism or, or the destruction of one's flesh just for purely religious motivation. It's a call to make a great exchange. And that great exchange is you renounce your idols and you receive the only true God, Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we come to celebrate today. So let's pray.